0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. So what we're going to be doing, um, as you know, we finished 1 and 2 Corinthians last year. We finished our Advent series, our Christmas characters and Christmas. For the next three Sundays, including starting today, we're going to be looking at three New Year's messages. It's not enough for us just to have one. And so we felt like we needed three, and uh, they are going to be three uh, soft messages, and and for the first two, um, we're going to be looking at the life of Daniel. And so for today, I'm going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, and then next week, I'll be looking at Daniel chapter 3, more closely at Daniel's friends. Um, And then God willing, um, after these three weeks, we'll be launching into the gospel of John. And so, uh, if you want to get started in your readings, um, you can get started reading there. And we're super excited. We'll take the whole year to go through the Gospel of John together. Very excited about that. So, um, Daniel. Daniel in Babylon. Well, Daniel was kidnapped. Have you seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson, at his best... Daniel is kidnapped at age 15. He's kidnapped because Jerusalem was invaded by an evil king, a king by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll refer to him as King Neb from now on. But he's inv- uh, Jerusalem is invaded in the 6th century BC, so 600 years before the Messiah comes. And Daniel and some of his friends and family are taken to captivity in Babylon. So his hometown, all that he's known and loved, his place of worship has been ransacked, completely overthrown. And what we find in Daniel chapter one is an interesting chronological marker in the first verse and in the last verse. Have a look there quickly with me. In verse one, it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so that's Israel's king, and he's only been king for three years, right? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we have a chronological time marker. It was in the third year of the reign of the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, which positions us at 605 B.C., 605 BC was an important but regrettable year for the Israelites. It was a year that they were taken into exile. And then at the end, in verse 21, we read this, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we have a number of actors in the story right up front. We've got The king of Judah, we've got the king of Babylon, we've got Daniel, and now we've got King Cyrus. The chronological marker here is that Daniel is in play in in the center of this unfolding story until the reign of King Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, which tells us that Persia then invaded Babylon and overthrew Babylon. So it's quite a tumultuous time. It is a time of uncertainty, it's a time of dictators ruling the world, and at any point your village, your home could be ransacked and besieged. In other words, you could lose your home, lose your livelihood, lose everything, and possibly even lose your life. What we see here is that the king of Cyrus comes in, the king of Persia, comes in at around the time of 537 B.C., Historical records in Scripture and out of Scripture confirm this. These are chronological markers, which tells us then that the life and ministry of Daniel spanned between the besieging of Israel, King King Nebuchadnezzar, all the way through to the King of Cyrus, and possibly beyond that. But this period of exile was 70 years. So for 70 years, it wasn't the best of times. So let's read We're just going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to have a look at what God wants to say to us. So we pick it up again. It says in verse one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphanaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, Endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them, get this, the literature and language of the Chaldeans, to teach them witchcraft. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated. This is Daniel and his friends. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, serve the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. He gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. We're going to consider this and possibly the whole context of the book of Daniel under two main themes, and that is firstly the reign of God and the resolve of Daniel. These are two prominent themes throughout the book, God reigns and Daniel reigns. Resolves. We're going to think through this carefully. Firstly, the reign of God. We are plunged right into the action in verse 1, aren't we? We're immersed immediately into the drama of the story. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem to destroy it. Jehoiakim, king of Israel, king of Judah, is only in his third year. How frustrating for him. Neb has moved against Jerusalem, resulting in utter destruction and the kidnapping of their most educated, most skilled, most wise youths. The situation is bleak. The the, the cultural anticipation is at its lowest. It is a dark and dismal picture. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So verse 1 tells us that Jerusalem has been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 2 tells us how Neb did it. How did Nebuchadnezzar do it? It was the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was the Lord who gave the king of Israel into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so just when you think it looks like Israel has fallen prey to the gods of Babylon, just when we think the pagans have got the upper hand, the second verse makes it clear that God still reigns even over the kings of the pagan nations. That even though there's been an invasion, and even though the people of God are taken into exile, this is all being done according to the sovereign will of God. This hasn't caught God off guard. This isn't, this isn't God caught by surprise. This isn't God having his arm twisted. In fact, the arm of the Lord is bringing this about. For ages, God had warned his people. For for generation after generation, God had warned the people that if they didn't cease from their idolatry, that if they didn't cease from their immorality, that if they didn't cease from their disobedience, that it would lead to discipline. God had sent prophet after prophet, warning the people of Israel, repent, return, come back, circumcise your hearts. But they were disobedient, and they ignored God, and they ignored the threats. And it seemed as if they had heard them, but ignored them. And that possibly God would just overlook it until this point. Until the point at which God gives Jehoiakim, the king of Israel, into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And God himself sends the people of Israel into exile under discipline under the father's discipline he allows another pagan king to rule over them and destroy their religion destroy the temple ransack the temple take their precious artifacts take them back into a pagan temple it was it was there was nothing worse for them And what we see right up front here under this theme of the reign of God is the beautiful balance that we see throughout the Scriptures between history unfolding and the theology that underpins history. The the history that's unfolding is that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take Jerusalem There's no doubt about it. God didn't put it in his heart. He wanted it all along. It was an evil intention. But God knew it from before the foundations of the world, and God planned it and allowed it. And so what we see here is the masterful outworking of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, working side by side. And all of this happening when six centuries before Christ's coming. Six centuries. There, there would have been a heightened anticipation. I mean, things were pretty bad. They, they were at a low. Culturally, they were at a low. Uh, it, there was immorality. There was idolatry. It was kind of like many of the prophets were thinking, now would be a good time for the Messiah to come. But instead of the Messiah coming, they are plunged back into slavery. It's almost like they're taken back to Egypt, but this time it's Babylon. And when the fall of Jerusalem happens, it looks like the pagan gods are winning. And to the human eye, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was king over all the earth. It looked like Nebuchadnezzar was in full control and and, and, and in power over Israel. But what we learn right up front in verse 2 is that in spite of appearances in spite of what we see with the natural eye, God was in complete control. The reason Jerusalem fell to Babylon was not because of Nebuchadnezzar's wisdom and strength. Verse 2 tells us the Lord gave him. The Lord did it. It was because of Judah's sin, and it was because of the will of the Lord. Here's what we learn right up front. What looked like a victory for the world was actually a victory for the Lord. Does that sound familiar? When A moment when the Messiah is on a cross and what looks like victory for Satan and the chief priests and the Roman soldiers is actually a victory for the Lord. And so we must take hope, church, when we look at history unfolding, all that's happening in the world, what we've come out of with COVID and no doubt corrupt people leveraging all of this fear of man and, 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 and politicians working their magic, when it looks like the pagans are winning, we can take heart that God is in control, amen? It doesn't look like it on the surface, you're right, it doesn't. Appearances can be deceiving. But what we learn here is that God reigns over those who rule, right? God reigns. God rules over the rulers. This is great news. We're on the right side on the right team. Isn't this amazing? One of the commentators on this particular verse says this. He says, the Israelites are not mere pawns. On a political and geographical chessboard, to be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is not to be out of the control of God. Let me encourage you. There are going to be moments in your life and in this year where you feel like, I'm not in the hand of God. I'm in someone else's hand. Someone else's dirty work. Someone else's schemes. And let's not, be, let's not be too ignorant that, that the, we do have an enemy. We'll look at some enemies shortly. But we do have a God who is sovereign over all things. And, and there will be, settle this, there will be moments where you don't see through it. You can't see the reason. You can't see why. But trust that he reigns. And he rules even over rulers. The second thing we see here is the resolve of Daniel. Daniel and his friends had resolved in their hearts to serve God even in the midst of a hostile environment. Look at verse 8. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food Or with the wine he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is not the Daniel fast. This is about defilement. This was about food that had been offered to idols. This was about King Nebuchadnezzar saying, This food we can't eat until we've offered it to the gods. And then once he had consecrated the food to the gods, they would then pass it down to all their servants. And so it was not about any diet of sorts. This was about faithfulness in the midst of a pagan environment. This was about an oppressive pagan environment wanting you to participate in their cultural practices. And so even in exile, at potential great cost to his life, possibly starvation if they say no, possibly execution if they say, who who do you think you are? But actually God makes a way where there seems to be no way. Daniel is resolved not to substitute the worship of God for the worship of idols. Daniel is not prepared to compromise. Daniel refuses to compromise. Daniel stays faithful in the midst of an exile in the midst of a foreign people. How how is this possible, Daniel? How do we do this? Well, the first thing we need to notice is that not everyone was faithful. Not everyone who went into exile responded the way Daniel responded. Actually, what we find is that many in Israel couldn't respond this way. They actually gave in. They compromised, and and they were so overwhelmed by the pressure of this pagan culture. They would say this. They would say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange and evil land? In other words, how do we worship God when when we're in this condition? How, How can we worship God when he's let this happen? How can a good God allow good people to suffer? And we could go on. In fact, this song is recorded for us in Psalm 137, verses 1 to 4. The people of Israel wrote about this time, and so did Boney M. Sorry to ruin your ears for the rest of the day. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion... On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they respond, How? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How bad was it in Babylon? It was really bad. I mean, the Bible uses the term Babylon for the epitome of evil. It comes again at the end of history. Mystery Babylon. If you've read Revelation, there you'll find it. Babylon biblically is used for the culmination of evil. All of evil put together. It's the chief example of how bad it could be. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king, a blasphemous king, taking the temple treasures of Israel to his own pagan temple. Educating, he put them into an education system, these young kidnapped children, where the government sponsored the religion of the day, which was witchcraft. So, how difficult was it for Daniel? Very, very difficult. And what we see is that Daniel resolved to stand when the rest of the Israelites sat down. The text tells us by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. But Daniel and his friends stood up. They stood up. When others sat down, they stood up. They stood up and trusted God. They stood up in the face of evil. They stood fast in the face of oppression. They stood fast. The the, the message of Daniel to us is resolve now before it happens. Resolve to stand firm even if you stand alone. Now it's easier said than done, right? Right? And so the question is, where did Daniel and his friends get this resolve from? And I think the answer is fairly straightforward. In order to be resolved to serve Christ in the face of oppression or wickedness or evil or pagan culture invading, you need a place to stand. If you're going to stand, where are you going to stand? So the first thing you need is a place where you're going to stand. And what will that be? That that thing that you choose to stand upon will be the compass for your life. And I submit to you that I think what Daniel and his friends did was they turned to the word of God. And they saw in the word of God that the place to stand is on the promises of God upon the, the, the character and nature of God, upon the truth about God. And so Daniel and his friends did this very thing. And one of the places they would have turned to is the prophet Jeremiah. Now, while Daniel is in Babylon, there were prophets in Israel and some of the prophets were Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, during their exile, says this. This is the context for Jeremiah 29, verses four to 11. And I want us to have a look at this because all that this says is exactly what I've just been saying. Listen to the word of God through Jeremiah. Now imagine Daniel hearing the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom they now think has just forsaken them, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he says, build houses and live in them, Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. This is what, Jeremiah, are you a false prophet? No, no, this is the word of the Lord, and the multiply there is an echo of the promise in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply wherever I send you. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Which city? Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, King Cyrus, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The exile wasn't an accident. It was the will and the work of God. And how did Daniel resolve to stand? Was because he found the right place to stand. I would submit to you that anything else, other than the word of God, to build your life upon is shaky ground. How are you going to resolve to stand? Because let me say, I think it's already happening the metaphorical King Nebuchadnezzar of our day, the cultural narrative of the sexual revolution and anything else that's still to come. It could be AI, who knows? It could be all sorts of scandalous things. Where are we gonna stand, church? Have you resolved that you will stand upon the word of God and not the word of the day or the word of the, the, the culture or the word of popular thought? Where will you stand? Have you got that place settled? And you know what's fascinating, and I'm bringing this to land now, what's fascinating is that Daniel, for the rest of his days, serves in Babylon, and him and his friends become politicians of all things. I think Daniel growing up probably dreamt of being a priest. Imagine, high aspirations, and one day I'm going to be a prophet, one day I'm going to be a priest. And what does he become? A politician in Babylon. And and you get the sense here that, that part of this resolve that we need to settle is God, take my life and use it as you please. I'm willing to lay down my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations for your plans and your purposes. Are we willing to do that? Because the Christian life, hear me, the Christian life is not about God helping you accomplish your plans and your dreams. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. Christianity is not about God, come and help me fulfill my dreams and my plans. No, no. It's about laying down your life, your plans, your dreams, and embracing his plan and his purpose for your life. I mentioned enemies. Daniel had some enemies. And in chapter 7, just quickly, his enemies couldn't find fault with him, which is unheard of for politicians, right? Right? But he was a man of God. And so what did they go after? Look at this in Daniel 7 verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel. They were so frustrated with him. Here it is. Unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Ah. This is where they're going to go after. If they can't fault your character... They're going to go after your faith. And this is happening. We don't only have have Christians who are giving in to the, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, of our day. We've got whole churches and denominations. But when they examined Daniel's life, what did they find? They found upstanding character. When they examined his life, they found that he was faithful at work. When they examined his life, they found that he was faithful at home. When they examined his life, they found that he was fervent in prayer. And so the one thing they would go after was his faith, his religion, because they knew he was predictable. He was so predictable. He would pray at this time of the day. He would serve God. He would worship. Let me ask, could that be said of us? Two things. One is, what do they find when they examine your life, firstly? When when they open up your search history, when they open up your financial records, when they open up the, the scroll of your life, what will people see? And secondly, is your faith actually commendable and predictable? Can they even go after it? And so I want to encourage us. To find the resolve that Daniel had in trusting the reign and the sovereignty of God, but also finding a place to stand. And that place is upon the Word of God and with the people of God. You can't do it alone, which is what we're going to look about next week. Because what happened to Daniel's friends, we we will discover next Sunday. Don't miss it. Let me say, we can thrive. God wants us to thrive in our Babylon. I don't know where your Babylon is. It might be your city. It might be your home. It might be your work. I don't know where it is, but wherever it is, wherever God has called you, be faithful. Be faithful, resolve to stand upon his truth and to be a witness about his goodness. We can thrive in Babylon. Trust God. Look to God. Be predictable in your faith. Show it. Allow people to see it. And watch Him work. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us on this New Year's Day. We thank you for a reminder that you rule over the rulers that you reign supreme. You are the king of kings, Lord Jesus. There is no one greater. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Thank you that we have a king. And we are part of a kingdom that will never end. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people just like Daniel and his friends that we would resolve to stand when others are sitting down, that we would would resolve to speak truth when others are giving up truth. Father, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us courage to thrive in this city. Under these rulers, under these circumstances, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it can can feel like depressing days, but you are the Lord of history and give us fresh eyes to see that this morning, that you reign and you rule despite appearances. Help us to resolve deep in our hearts to serve you and to live for your glory above above our own aspirations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.